Welcome back to A Tribe of One, the podcast where we grapple with themes of community and the struggle between belonging and being. We'll be taking a short hiatus after this episode as we wrap up this first season and spend some time planning and building up a second round of top-notch discussions for you and others who want to think deeper about tribes. That said, let's dive into this week's conversation with thinker extraordinaire Shomit Goes a titan of technology who's been around the block in Silicon Valley. After being admitted to UC Berkeley at the ripe old age of 15, he went on to work in leadership roles at numerous tech companies when they went public and pivoted into a successful career in venture capital and boardrooms. He is in his 20th year as a partner at Onset Ventures and also lectures at multiple universities on entrepreneurship and business. Now, Shomit is a true veteran who's worked across numerous facets of tech, engineering, operations, sales, marketing, all of which gives him a very wide breadth of experience and makes for interesting conversations. We wanted to talk with Shomit about the future of artificial intelligence and dove into business ethics, privacy, education, and lots more. I think you'll really enjoy hearing what Shomit has to say. So please enjoy this episode and share it with a friend. All right, welcome to A Tribe of One, the podcast where we talk about communities that we've been a part of, communities where we belong to today, and communities that we can only dream about. Today, we are here with Shomit. Uh, Shomit is a veteran Silicon Valley entrepreneur with deep experience in software startups, and both as a venture capitalist, as a board member, and as an operating executive. He has had multiple successful IPOs as an operating exec and multiple successful exits by acquisition as both an operating exec and as a board member. He served in virtually every operating role in a variety of successful startups, board member, CEO, COO, VP marketing, VP sales, VP engineering, and VP services. And he was most recently recently managing director and partner at Onset Ventures, an early stage venture capital firm, and invests and serves on boards of multiple software startups. And he is also significantly committed to youth development causes. Shomit, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. Awesome. So we'd like to kick it off with our uh, traditional question at uh, Tribal One. So what are, how do you define tribe and uh, what are some tribes that you've been a part of? Uh, that's a really good question. I define tribe as being uh, any grouping of people uh, with a shared passion. And as a consequence, I've been a part of and continue to be a part of multiple tribes. Probably every aspect of my life is dis- uh, defined by the tribes in which I belong. So uh, I have a, you know, shared passion for innovation and entrepreneurship. So uh, I'm in a tribe with a lot of uh, co-investors and founders in, uh, in different startups. Um, I spent a long time both playing sports and coaching sports, and there I was part of the passion around the team, uh, you know, competing with other teams, which is like actually very similar to my startup career, where I was part of a tribe of a, of a startup team that was competing with other startup teams. So. Yeah, so those are the ones I've been a part of, and uh, I think that's probably the best definition in my mind is a shared passion. Nice, and that's uh, really, you know, a passion and purpose. I think that that's what it really comes down to at the end of the day. And uh, it's so interesting that you 
really quickly draw the analogy between entrepreneurship and sports. Both are, you know, really, really competitive, right? It's also interesting to see how a lot of the new startups that are coming up today, they're, they're trying to be sort of more open and cooperative. And uh, I am really curious how that, how that model changes uh, over time. I also want to actually, you know, talk a little about uh, some of your, I guess, scholarships that you had got, gotten to Berkeley at the age of 15. Uh, this was really shocking to read. But what was your sort of experience finding tribes in college and um, I guess the early years of your career, given, given your age difference? Yeah, so I think, again, this gets back to why I think the shared passion is what defines the tribe. So, and as it comes to an age cohort, certainly I was a little bit younger than my fellow students at Berkeley. So that wasn't really uh, what sort of could define my tribe. My tribe was defined by fellow students who were engaged in you know, the same, same area of study. Uh, and we think we suffered the same, same strains and uh, you know, demands on, our, on our, our schedules and ourselves. And that helps cement that tribal bond. Actually, I even ended up, I used to play intramural football uh, and it was with people who I met from my classes. So, you know, that also, I think uh, it went from having the, the shared bond, the shared passion within our field of study to actually taking it into another area which, in which we all had shared, uh, shared bonds of shared passion, which is the love of sports. Another tribe I belonged to while at Berkeley, I played on the, on the men's lacrosse team. And uh, uh, get once again, shared passion for the sport, um, shared passion for being a team and, and trying to, to win as a team uh, and competing with other teams who also had the shared passion for the sport, but had a, had a passion for their own team. So, uh, which has mirrored my, my career in startups as well. You know, startups are, are small teams and uh, shared passion for achieving success. And you're in competition with, not conflict, I think, but in competition with other startups who are uh, similarly constituted with other passionate individuals. And um, some of you win and some of you don't win. We all know leadership is a big part of the success of tribes. How do you think that translates between sports? I, you know, I, I think it's the same because it's about the um, shared success in sports and in startups both. Uh, there's no such thing as individual success uh, unless you're playing golf or, or tennis or something. But in team sports, it's, it's shared success. And what that means is everyone needs to sacrifice and um, sacrifice for the good of the team, which is exactly what you do in a startup. So um, the parallels are exactly the same, I think. Do you think you could uh, walk through some of the... Uh the sacrifices, you know, that you had to make, um, you know, when you were a part of startups, um, cause you've had, you've had such a, you know, prolific career in so many different roles. Uh, and that blows my mind, you know, jumping between the VP of marketing and then going into engineering and, you know, playing the CEO role, all these different roles, but how do you sort of see sacrifices in, in each of these different roles? Uh, yeah. So, uh, the obvious thing you sat, you sacrifice in any startup is your time. Because uh, there's a lot of work that goes into it, and there's a lot of stress that's attendant uh, with it, so um, you're sacrificing quite a bit of your your psyche and your time there. And as part of a team, whether it's an athletic team or a startup team, there's quite a bit of give and take. Not everybody can be on the field winning all the time. Success is really defined by each of you giving what you can and knowing when to step step back when someone can give better than you can. And as far as the startups within excuse me, sacrifices within the startup world, that's what it comes down to. There's no such thing in the end as ego. 
you have to realize that somebody might be better at something. Somebody might deserve a promotion more than you do because that person is more capable in that role than you are. And that means, of course, sacrificing your own ego to think, ah, you know, it's the right thing for the good of the team. For us to win as a startup, I need to step back so this other individual can come in and do that role better than I'd be able to do because it's about the collective success, which, of course, is the same thing that happens in, in sports. Sometimes you need to sit on the bench because... The game situation is such that someone else is going to be better able to uh, either score or keep the other guy from scoring uh, than you would be. I find it really fascinating, uh, just the nature of entrepreneurship and how it requires sacrifices from everyone and different types of sacrifices, I feel like, at different stages of the company. And to give you a sort of personal analogy, I remember in the early days of Sapien when Rob and I were, were coding, we would be, we would be up, I'd be up like many nights, actually just, uh, writing code making tweaks, making adjustments just to see the product get a little bit better. And, um, you know, it's like those, those things that you, you don't really have many opportunities to talk about, you know, because you don't know if any, any anything's really going to pan out in the end, but at the time you're like just in it. And I remember like, you know, there was nights where coding where, you know, my fingers would start to hurt, uh, because we just really wanted to see it, see it succeed. And that's like a, that's a, that's one form of sacrifice. I feel like, you know, the physical pain almost that comes with, uh, with entrepreneurship, but, uh, so much of it does seem to be like this mental game that, um, just like the best athletes, you know, when we're talking about like LeBron and, you know, Kobe, they had the mental game sort of nailed down. And, uh, I wonder, you know, if you've sort of, uh, had an opportunity to practice specific exercises or, um, simulations where you feel like you're strengthening the mental aspect of the game? Yeah, that, that's a really good question. I think, um, and a really good point. I think here really what, what is called for is, uh, is detachment from your ego without getting overly philosophical. Um, and that's what helps you actually sacrifice when you need to sacrifice is detachment from your ego. I, I'm always acutely aware that I'm, I'm never the smartest person in the room. Certainly when I was playing sports, I was never the best player on the field. And I think having that, that realization, that acknowledgement is important because it allows you to know that um, there are others who can do things better than you might be able to do. And if your opponent is able to do something that's better than you are able to do, you have to detach yourself from the, uh, the ego blow there and think about how do I actually account for and adjust for the fact that this individual is better than I am in a competitive situation? How do I play to my strengths and maybe get the opponent to play to their weaknesses? Um, so, you know, I think that detachment aspect is good. And as a VC, this also comes up in day-to-day in -day life because uh, we are constantly querying uh, entrepreneurs who are thinking about financing uh, about how detached they might be, essentially asking them, do you want to be rich or do you want to be king or queen? Uh, if you want to be king or queen, the implication there is that you're driven by ego, you want to have the big title. It's not really about making the company successful. So the right answer when the oblique question is asked, hey, would you rather be rich or would you rather be queen, king or queen? As an entrepreneur, the right answer is to say, I'd rather be rich. Because then that aligns with what the, the venture investor's goal is, which is to make the company successful. So if that means that, yeah, I might be CEO today, but uh, you know, three years from now, maybe I'm merely VP of strategy or something like that, because there's a more capable CEO in place, someone who can drive this company to success, that's the right answer. So it's that detachment from the ego, which certainly serves you well on the sports field, serves you well as an entrepreneur, and even enables you to give the right answer when queried. Um, and again, the, the question will be oblique when it comes from the investor. They'll say, hey, Ankit, where do you see yourself in three to five years? 
And of course, the right answer is, I see myself here at the company making it a wild success in whatever role is necessary. That's the right answer. Mm -hmm. yeah, and I think this uh, translates really nicely to the, to the idea of tribes. And Rob, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this too, but you know, it always, it feels like to some degree, the individual has to sort of, you know, dissolve into the collective and be a part of something bigger, right? Where the sort of individual, the ego needs are sort of uh, subservient to the, whatever the objective or the higher purpose of the, of the tribe might be. Do you see that as a sort of general pattern, Rob, like across tribes in this sort of collective identity? I think, uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. And there's certainly some internal conflict there because uh, as Shama was just saying, you know, uh, maybe the best way to succeed is to, to want to be rich. So maybe what's ultimately best for the success of the whole is to follow sort of selfish interests, it seems. But yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly within the context of, uh, of VCs and yeah, Shama. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, if you think about it, why did we originally organized it into tribes because none of us individually was capable enough of fending up for ourselves or being able to protect ourselves, right? This is why we organize into tribes in the first place. And this means that uh, there is a hierarchy within the tribe. Somebody is a better hunter than you are. Somebody might be a better farmer than you are. And you have to, have, you may be a great farmer. Rob may be the great hunter. Great. I should farm and Rob should hunt. Uh, regardless of how I might imagine myself as being the world's mightiest hunter, if Rob's better, he's better off doing it. So this is, I think, part of being in a tribe is realizing the role that you play within that tribe, within that team, within that startup. And in the end, it's all about the, the collective success of that unit. Mm, absolutely. And I can uh, certainly attest that Rob has uh, an ax and a, uh, a bow, and, bow and arrow that he's uh, excellent with. So <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I find it like, especially in the, in the space of um, venture capitalism, you know, it's, it's one of those, I guess, rare roles where you can start, you can think long-term, right. And uh, you, you think about like so many problems in society that are arising from having myopic views, you know, kind of on that two to four year cycle that politics runs. And, um, I find it, I'm curious, Shaman, if you have any other examples of this, but it seems like VCs are probably one of the only roles in society that are paid to align incentives with a, with their long-term worldview, because often, you know, you're, you're operating in like a 10 year sort of horizon. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, uh, I think the latest statistics I saw is that the average path today to an acquisition is six years and IPO is eight years. So when you make an investment in a startup, you're not thinking about what's successful today. You're thinking about what will be successful in that six to eight or 10 year time horizon. And so you're forced into thinking long-term and you can't succeed in the short term because it's a startup. Um, you can't possibly build a startup to market validation and success in anything less than, you know, those longer time periods. So you're, you're constantly thinking about what will the world look like uh, over the long-term horizon and how will this startup fit into it? And also this gets back to the thing of uh, letting go of, of your ego because um, as business evolves, as it will over time, is that startup entrepreneur uh, ego-free enough to be able to adapt with what the market's telling them? Or are they so fixated on what they originally thought about? They're so uh, stubbornly clinging to that that they're not able to evolve and consequently they you know, end up doing the company in. Yeah. And, you know, I think definitely one thing I want to um, touch upon later is just the trends that we're seeing with uh, sort of decentralized technology and the emergence of DAOs where people are taking 
sort of a step back. You know, this the CEO CEO role is not as uh, sort of warranted in some of these situations. And the best example is like sort of you know Bitcoin and uh, having Satoshi invented and just sort of walk away. You know, that is I guess almost the ultimate manifestation of an egoless contribution to society, right? You know, he did not do it for the money, he did it to, to, to push everything forward in a, in a very novel way. How do you see the evolution of these uh, sort of egoless characters like Satoshi? Yeah, I think that that's what's necessary for um, collective success, right? So perhaps as exemplified by Satoshi and um, for success in a team, it requires sacrificing for collective success. The same is true in startups. And in fact, this is why that whole question of would you rather be rich or would you rather be king is or queen is so key because if you want to be rich, that means that you're in the same, you know, you're aligned with the VC because the VC is focused on making the company a success. The VC succeeds when the company succeeds as signaled by or measured by the entrepreneurs achieving financial success. Whereas as an entrepreneur, you could be CEO, but a company could be an abject failure. So it's not really about being king or queen. It's really about driving the financial success of the company. So it's collective collective success that we're trying to all drive toward and collective su uh, success requires individual sacrifice quite often. Yeah, and I, I really wonder, you know, taking this the same sort of pattern and in a way of operating, you know, if, if there were only a way to apply it to politics and broader society, I think the reason it works so, so well for, you know, for VCs is that, you know, there's, there's sort of one metric that's being optimized for, right? Like the overall sort of market cap of the company and oftentimes, um, or, you know, sometimes just the sort of reoccurring revenue. Um, but there's sort of very sort of solid metrics and, I'm curious, like if there were there were a way to apply that to broader society and have more people sort of thinking long term, right, instead of just you know what gets you reelected in the next cycle. Yeah, it it might be simpler for us in the startup world because the systems themselves are so small, and when you get into things as complex as human society, uh, it's really tough um, because there's so many different uh, priorities and so many different competing interests. Uh, so it's it's much more difficult. And sometimes uh, perhaps you need a crisis to help bring that focus to society. And, and absent that, perhaps we're all too focused on our own priorities and, and it's difficult for us to align. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually uh, one of the guests we had uh, recently was uh, Dr. Robin Hansen, the author of The Great Filter. And uh, we were talking a lot about existential risks and, and that was something, Shomit, that you've also written quite a bit on. But, you know, when there are sort of certain you know, catastrophes in human history that I guess either have already happened or will happen, there needs to be some sort of new tools or, or just approaches to sort of tackling these. And it's unclear right now, I guess, as we're currently structured, whether we can tackle these issues when we face them. And uh, yeah, I wonder if any, any sort of come to your mind or, you know, you, I know you spend some time thinking about AI and the future of AI. Maybe we can talk about that a bit when it comes to existential risk? Yeah, no, I think that uh, um, I had written a, that an article maybe a year and a half ago, and it was called Crisis is Catalyst. And uh, a lot of uh, human advancement has happened under the duress of crisis. So if you look at all these advancements, which, which really laid the foundation for modern society, computing, jet engines, antibiotics, um, you know, rockets, all of these things, uh, the genesis actually was the Second World War. 
So the first computers were from there, penicillin and, and jet engines both basically got productized, although they'd been invented years before. They didn't get productized uh, really until the, uh, the years of the Second World War. And uh, the same thing with, with rocketry, which has given rise to the, you know, the, the whole space exploration thing that we're engaged in now. So crisis has um, the effect of focusing human creativity and imagination because we have to deal with that crisis. So crisis very often serves as a catalyst for innovation. And it might be that some of these really acute problems that we face um, as a species today, you know, food, water, uh, scarcity, and, and pollution, all of these things, disease, these crises will help us perhaps focus so that we can drive innovation more quickly so that we can deal with those crises. So, um, yeah, and I think that uh, AI can play and will play a huge role in this um, because it's a, it's a very scalable way to help, um, help bring benefit to uh, you know, large segments of society. So I'm hopeful that all these challenges that we now face, um, that AI will pay a, play a big part in being a part of that solution. A lot of those uh, advancements you mentioned, Shaman, Shaman, were in the context of something like uh, World War II, where there's sort of a obvious competition dynamic going on. Uh, but with something like a pandemic, it seems like it's uh, much less clear what everyone's fighting against, right? There's uh, so many different uh, perspectives out there that it seems harder to unite. Do you think that competitive aspect is a, a key part of the crisis being a sufficient uh... yeah i think here if you look at the, um, what we've been confronted with the past uh, year and a half or so with the pandemic it really required that we pull together and we pulled together initially with with masking and social distancing and things like that so the non-pharmaceutical solutions which helped us bide time buy time until the pharmaceutical solutions were ready and the fact that we were able to uh, formulate so many different solutions. You know, there have been so many different vaccines produced by uh, people around the world. Um, you know, that speaks to how much this, and we produced these drugs in record time, right? So this speaks again to the, the genius of, of uh, humankind being unleashed by the exposure to this crisis. And we have other big crises before us. Climate change will be probably the, the paramount one. And, um, once again, hopefully this focuses all of this creativity and imagination and genius that's, that's uh, a part of who we are as a species and helps us to solve, solve the problems. It may be that if the crises hadn't burst upon us in such short periods of time, it would have taken us a really long time to solve them. We have lots of problems in front of us. We're going to have to solve them. And, uh, and perhaps the fact that they are so, so profound in, in their effects, that that's what will help us uh, really redouble and and focus and and solve the problems in the best way possible. Uh, so, Shomit, I do want to dive a bit deeper into uh, ethical AI. Uh, it's something that I think you've uh, written quite a bit of, uh, quite a bit about. Um, and I think in one of your articles, you describe, I guess, almost these like twin outcomes between the Iron Man scenario and the Terminator scenario, uh, where you say all technology, AI included exists for a single purpose, to make life better. To do so, it must deliver fundamental human rights, including food, education, healthcare, a livelihood, a clean environment, and not least of all, the right to personal privacy. And uh, you talk a lot about, uh, I guess, data trails. So I was wondering, you know, maybe if you could just briefly explain 
what that is and how AI utilizes that. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, as I said in the article, um, yeah, technology only exists to make life better. If it makes life worse, then we shouldn't be uh, developing it, right? And too often we develop technologies without thinking of this of the the broader impacts of did it really make life better? And if you think about you know some of the the concerns that I cited there, um, certainly we can automate till the cows come home and put people out of work. But if we don't have uh, replacement ways for those people to earn a living, then we've perhaps done more damage than the, whatever problems we thought we might have solved. Um, so we always need to have this this broader consideration in mind. And this is why I framed it as Iron Man versus Terminator, because you think about Terminator, fully automated AI, and it was sent here, you know, uh, to kill us. Uh, then you think about Iron Man, which is technology complementing, augmenting human beings so that we can be the best, you know, the best possible uh, beings that we can be. So can we pursue AI in the Iron Man model and not the Terminator model? So can we pursue AI so that it complements us, not replaces us? And some of the negative effects that AI can have, of course, is that um, your data trails can be, when you think about privacy issues, your data trails may seem very faint or vague or unrelated to something or the other, but those data trails can give away quite a bit. So, you know, simple things as your your headshot photo image. It's been work done by Michael Kaczynski, who's mapped it both to political orientation and sexual orientation. Uh, this is some work that was done at Stanford over the past few years. So, you know, you might think about, hey, I've just uploaded my photo. What does that mean? Well, it actually will tell people lots of things, you know, things about who you are, even tells people about the state of your health. Uh, and there have been there's been quite a bit of work done in uh, running machine learning across facial images to, to uh, extract state of the health. So these are the sorts of data trails that we give up, um, and we may not know that there are are um, you know intimate conclusions that can be drawn from them. And this goes back to the issue of ethics. So as a business, what is your most sustainable differentiator? Of course, it's ethics. None of us would patronize a business that's not ethical. So if you think about having a business that's sustainable, uh, ethics is really central to it. And what this means further is that uh, machine learning and data trails may allow you to do a lot of things, but just because you can do them doesn't mean you should. And there are things which you know in your heart are not ethical, things that the person who's given you that data trail, either uh, intentionally or inadvertently, uh, that they don't want you figuring out, out about them. And if that's the case, don't do it. Don't be unethical. Because the fastest way to be uh, an out-of-business business is to be unethical because no one will patronize you. Yeah, it, it certainly seems, Shomit, that a lot of these, uh, a lot of, I guess, you know, big tech companies are able to kind of circumvent that and, I guess, short-term, again, operate in ways that are unethical and, you know, maybe profit-maximizing. And, and there don't seem to be any substantial consequences. You know, uh, I think you you touched on this in the, uh, article as well around the need for self-regulation, but you know I I don't I don't really see that happening personally. And the government, when whenever they do try, I mean it's just a slap on the wrist uh, when it right. comes to fines. So where do we look to? You know? Yeah, right, exactly. So I think uh, we look to ourselves here because. This is why I talk about the importance of self-regulation. Um, we can, of course, always comply with regulation and say, hey, we're doing this stuff that's completely legal, not violating any laws. But can you look at yourself in the mirror and think that you're doing something which your parents would be proud of if they knew if you were doing it, right? Can you look at yourself in the mirror and look back 
and be happy with the person you see in the mirror. So self-regulation is important. Regulate Just complying with regulation itself is not enough because the laws such as they are may allow you to do things which um, are not ethical. So self-regulation, and I think it will always be the case that uh, regulation will trail technology. Regulation will never be equal to technology in being able to keep you know, keep on top of the things that you, you you should be able to do. So if regulation trails technology, then only through self-regulation can we uh, behave ethically. Does this mean that there are companies who might be, you know, bigger companies who are behaving in ways which are, are unethical and they can outcompete you consequently? Yeah, that may be the case, but I think it's more important that we as entrepreneurs always, always um, walk the path of ethics. And in the end, I believe that uh, ethics is the final differentiator. You know, if you take the example, what if I were to say, hey, Ankit, I'd like to introduce you to Rob. He's brilliant. He's funny. He's successful. He's you know, a great conversationalist. You should meet him. But by the way, he has no ethics. So you, Ankit, would say, why do I want to meet this guy? He just told me he was unethical, right? You don't want to spend your precious time with somebody who you will not have a long-term relationship with. So ethics is the final differentiator in in our human relationships. And I think that extends to business too. So as a new entrant, as a startup into any business realm, I think the most important thing you can be is to be explicitly ethical from, from the first day. Hmm. Yeah, part of me, Shabat, you know, giving that hypothetical is, part of me is really curious to have, to meet someone like that where they have all these good qualities and somehow turn out to be unethical as well. So uh, a little too curious there. <laughs> but no, yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, no, I think there are people out there who are you know, outwardly successful, but uh, inwardly may not have, have the ethics to match. So uh, those are the people that are personal life probably best avoided. Yeah. And I guess when it comes to, uh, to AI and, you know, building this sort of, I guess, Iron Man, Iron Man scenario where uh, it does sort of augment the human experience. Do you do you envision some sort of uh, framework or process by which we could help sort of ensure that AI remains ethical? Yeah, I, I think the the framework is. Um, it would be great if you could. You know, there, and there are some frameworks that are out there, by the way. But I think frameworks are are difficult because technology is so fast moving and so malleable. So there may be things which are unethical but still conform to the established framework. And this is why I think that the self-regulation is is the best um, best measure is to always think about wake up every morning and think about uh, am I doing something wrong? Is the data set that I used to train this model was the data set skewed and that's helping to pr uh, produce results that are not equitable, consequently not ethical? And it's I think it's only through that constant scrutiny of always thinking about uh, am I doing everything that I can be doing that you can can walk this really um, really narrow line. And I think the analogy here is if you look at um, driving in traffic. So there are lots of, you know, lots of rules, lots of frameworks about how one drives in traffic. And yet people you know, can conform, you know, we can comply with all of the rules and you can still get into an accident, either because somebody else wasn't paying attention or it was raining cats and dogs. So despite your best intentions, despite the existence of uh, legal frameworks on how you drive, Anytime any of us takes the wheel and gets out in the road, we're, you know, we have our hazardness. Well, we're constantly looking around. We have that constant scrutiny. And I think that same need, model needs to be applied within AI to have the constant scrutiny to think about, am I doing the right thing given the circumstances and the situation? Am I doing the right thing? Am I 
continuing to be, try to be ethical in, in every respect. Yeah, one of my concerns with AI is uh, just how powerful it is, right? Once it gets beyond the understanding of the people who develop it, how can we enforce ethics on it? For example, something like a self-driving car, right? That is maybe uh, subtly preferring different groups of people and uh, consequently has a huge statistical impact on car crashes or something like that. Uh, but that's not something that was explicitly programmed into this. Yeah, exactly. You can have a, a perfect algorithm, but if the, uh, the data that you used to train that algorithm was imperfect, uh, you're going to end up, of course, producing imperfect results and impacting people's lives. So how do you ensure that the data is, is balanced? That's a really difficult thing. Um, there have been uh, you know, further things that have been developed recently. Um, there's been quite a bit of work done on what is the carbon footprint of, of AI and is the benefit that you're delivering equal to the carbon footprint that you've just created? So even things like that need to be brought into our considerations because you know, there's an ethical consideration there. Is the, the benefit that you deliver to, to Rob taken away by the negative impact that you're creating on Ankit through, that, uh, that, through the carbon footprint of, of that AI model? And I think there's a, another aspect of all this, but you know, just, just the, you know, you, you talk a lot about just the massive sort of aggregation of data. And I think, uh, our sort of audience would be most, uh, familiar with it in the context of social media and how, you know, platforms like Facebook have aggregated so much, um, sort of user data and they're able to have somewhat of a monopoly on that, um, the predictive capabilities of that. And, um, that really scares me because, you know, um, it might seem that almost at a local level, a lot of the sort of smaller teams within these companies are sort of doing good, but you know, nobody's really sort of seeing how everything sort of bubbles up and what's the sort of society level impact. I feel like, you know, where people can kind of go home at night and, and sleep comfortably knowing that, Oh, I did a good job today. Um, but it was maybe within a small team of five, 10 people. But when you get many of these sort of, uh, tribes sort of acting together, um, the aggregate effect is sometimes hard to figure out. And I'm not sure there's a good sort of framework because as Rob's saying, once it's sort of out of the lab, you know, it's it's out of the lab. Like there's no way to sort of, you know, rein it back in. I don't know if you see any sort of better structure there to, uh, before we have sort of runaway AI. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, right. So I, I think there are a lot of, uh, a lot of issues here, uh, lots of benefits, but also lots of threats. And we have to be very careful in walking the line in between. I think one of the, the issues that we've run into recently is that so much data has been concentrated into you know, so few hands. There are just a few data monopolies who have increasingly more data. And the more they have, the more that they know about us. And you know, heretofore, things like antitrust has been based on, on costs. So company A is acquiring company B, the regulators will ask, okay, company A, you're, you're acquiring company B and perhaps gaining a price monopoly. Are you going to be changing your pricing at all? Uh, no, no, we're not going to change our pricing at all. Our offering has been free in the past. It's going to be free in the future. Oh, okay, great. Go ahead and make the uh, acquisition. And so the lens through which um, acquisitions uh, are is viewed is, is, is price-based. Whereas I think a more interesting question would be is, is on the privacy side, uh, company A, by acquiring company B, are you acquiring more and more private information about Rob, Shomit, Ankit, Jonathan, et cetera? Because then you're starting to aggregate all of the private information. And if we view 
um, antitrust through the lens of privacy, perhaps that acquisition is not sac sanctioned. You know, you'd say that, yeah, you know, you may not be changing the pricing paradigm, but you're concentrating ever more privacy data in your hands. And for that reason, we're going to actually bar the acquisition. And, you know, as a consumer, I think for all of us, we'd much rather have our private information sitting in a thousand different hands, you know, one thousandth in each of these companies versus all of it sitting in you know, two or three hands, which is you know, how things are materializing currently. Hmm. Uh, so that's, that's one of my worries is just the um, consolidation of private data about all of us in just a few hands, because of course, the more they know, the more data they have, the more they know about us, each of us individually, things that we may not want other people to know because it's private and intimate data. Yeah, I find it, Shaman, uh, interesting the evolution of monop uh, monopolies themselves. And, you know, you're talking that it, you know, it used to be based on price, and a company that had a monopoly could make the same product offering at a cheaper price point. And the economies of scale and, um, you know, sort of other competitive claims over supply chains and whatnot could, could lead to that. But when it comes to data monopolies, and you, you mentioned this in your article too, that competition itself is a necessary component of any healthy economy. And without competition, we don't get those ethical business practices. What is, what is, what does competition look like for a future that is so data driven, right? Is it, is it, it won't necessarily be competition of pricing, but would it then be, you know, who can competitively and ethically gather and best utilize data? Is that the positioning of these companies? Yeah, I think the, the ethics part is paramount. So uh, every business, I believe, needs to be ethical because if it's not ethical, it will not be sustainable. It will be put out of business. So I think the ethics part is super important. Um, and it's combining that ethics with being able to predict. Um, we live in an economy where everything is commoditized, right? There's no product that we have that's not available from another supplier. So everything com is commoditized, which means the more you have, the less it's worth. And if everything is a commodity, the only way for you to win in a commoditized environment is there you have two ways of winning. You can uh, lower your price or you can predict what's going to happen. So predicting the future. So lowering your price is not a good business model, but if you can predict what's going to happen, uh, that's where success lies. And the better the quality of your data, the better you can predict what the future is going, uh, going, to, going to bring. So I think that future business models, future startups, uh, even future business models for, for big legacy companies lies in, of course, ethics, but also marshalling data and using it to predict what's going to happen. And in a data-driven world, the, the world actually truly becomes flat. Everybody can compete with everybody else. You may have seen recently that Budweiser, the beer company, is getting into the insurance business because of data signature. Walmart, the large retailer, is getting into banking, once again, because of data signature. In the old days, it would have been the case that, hey, to get into banking, you need to have you know, $10 billion on deposit. Uh, what um, Walmart has, has been able to divine is that in the current climate, uh, you don't need $10 billion in deposit, you need 10 billion data points. And with 10 billion data points, you can be a bank. Um, and with, you know, with some number of data points, uh, Budweiser can be an insurance company. So um, the ubiquity of data uh, is now truly flattening the the verticals in our industries and it's allowing anybody to compete in any industry. That's certainly, I think, one almost vision for competitive businesses in the future. I'm personally not as much of a fan of some of those predictive capabilities or I guess basing the entire business on that. 
because it seems like that's the most likely outcome like the outcome of that is our products like uh tiktok and you know ai technology being used to segment people in a way that doesn't feel very human to me it feels like if everything that we are are data points then it's a sense that our very beings are just being kind of you know distilled into just a set of data and i don't really know if any sustainable business can actually be based on that um you know i think this is again this is, is such a such a complex and, and nuanced landscape and these, these are exactly the sorts of questions you need to have on kit is how do we walk this path wisely so yeah, as we're talking i'm sitting here wearing my fitbit and fitbit has been used and this is a paper pub- published in lancet about a year and a half ago to be able to predict the onset of the flu so if you want to think about you know bringing scalable healthcare being able to detect at a micro level at you know, at the individual level or at a population level disease outbreak and how can you do that in a scalable way data signature allows you to do that so it might be the case that you know i live in some remote rural area i have no access to healthcare but i'd like to know when certain health conditions are starting to develop so i can predict whether it's something like the flu or it could be anything sleep apnea uh dementia all of these things that my data signals will help help predict that so it allows me to approach my healthcare in a preventive fashion so that i don't develop those conditions or if i do develop those conditions know know that i have developed them so i can seek out the right medical care and it's it's really it's finding these sorts of iron man kinds of technologies that do make life better use data signals to, to make life better where the future lies and I think, as you just voiced, Ankit, there are also a lot of negative use cases here. Those are the ones to be avoided, both the ones that we intentionally do and also sometimes people accidentally do this. As as you probably know, there's been quite a bit of work done on the the redlining, generally inadvertent, but the redlining of people based on their data signatures that deny them things like you know, bank loans and, and car insurance and things like that. So... Those are the things to be aware of so that we can avoid all those those negative effects um, so that we can hopefully solely uh, pursue those those uh, uh, solutions that bring positive effects, you know, things like healthcare, education, you know, access to financial resources, things like that. Yeah, I mean, the, the line between utopia and dystopia is a very thin one, it seems. But uh, thank That's you right. for, exactly. for inspiring a little bit more positivity in my in my thinking there. Uh, it's possible. Yeah, no, to, it is. It yeah. is. It's a very thin line <laughs> uh, between utopia and dystopia. Very thin line. But this is why, you know, going back to the driving on the freeway example, why we have to just be constantly aware and have our heads up and and know that it's it's really easy for us to end up doing the wrong thing. Um, and it's only through that constant awareness that we can hopefully only do the right things. Right. There's a there's a whole there's a whole notion of ethics, but you know the thing that I think terrifies myself and Rob, uh, I know uh, you as well, is is the system of incentives, right, that are in place to to deploy sort of unethical technology, right? If it's certainly, if it's profitable, you know, it, it certainly can be aligned with like a, the VC's like, you know, core objective, then you're kind of in a tough spot, right? Right. Because your ethics will be challenged. And I mean, you know, you're, show me, you're, I'm sure you've been a great VC, but, you know, it's, uh, it's hard to imagine that every VC will be ethical in the way that they're operating and the, comp- the types of com- companies that they're supporting um, because it really just isn't their, their goal at the end of the day. 
Yeah, or or they do mean to be ethical, but they just didn't foresee what the downstream effects might be. And I think uh, automation is a, is a great example here. So we may say, hey, by automating X, Y, and Z, we can lower the cost of producing A, B, and C, um, and we e achieve an economic benefit, right? We produce this product much more cheaply. Uh, but the question there would be to me is, well, who do you put out of work and are they going to be able to find replacement work? Because if the societal cost is so steep, we put all these people out of out of work, they have no way of seeking alternate employment. Was that too steep of a, a price to pay for the automation? And we've confronted problems such as this before. So you think about, you know, up until probably the 1960s, the pollution that came from industrial production was not a consideration. Oh, hey, we can build that widget more cheaply. Uh, if we just dump the effluents out into the neighboring river, the neighboring field, great, we'll build it more cheaply. So the products might have been more affordable, but society figured out pretty quickly that the environmental impact, uh, that was too steep a price to pay for that, that cheaper product. So you know, now we hopefully know better and we try not to pollute. And we have to think about uh, AI impacts in the same way. Is, is the societal impact greater than the economic benefit? Um, and sometimes you can't foresee that. So you may be a completely ethical uh, VC and you think that, hey, this is great. We're automating X, Y, Z. We're producing a robot that does this, this cool thing and just didn't consider the downstream effects of, oh my gosh, we're going to put 2 million people out of work and they support a further, you know, 8 million family members or 10 million family members. And there's no way of replacing that employment. And this is why I think the Terminator versus the Iron Man model might be something they want to bear in mind always, is can we keep humans in, uh, in the loop so that we don't end up uh, eliminating all employment? Hmm. Yeah, and uh, I think sometimes it's easy from our vantage point living in America to, to sort of disallow certain activities. I mean, I, you know, what comes to mind for me is like all the third world countries uh, that are trying to industrialize right now, you know, we're kind of looking down upon them saying, Hey, like, uh, it's not good to pollute. And your sort of your industrial revolution that, you know, is, is needing to happen. That shouldn't, shouldn't be the case because we don't want to leave such a carbon footprint. So I find it interesting, right? Cause people are obviously on different sort of starting grounds here, but, um, yeah, I, I do want to talk a bit more about some of these, uh, these incentives, I think, uh, and Rob, I think one thing you've been really vocal about is, um, you know, something like an Airbnb, right. Which is, uh, I'm sure a VC favorite, but, uh, I think Rob, you were, I remember you telling me one day about how it's having such an effect on local, uh, hotels and, and, uh, local sort of ecosystems. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit more about that too. I think, yeah, th with the issue, the issue with things like Airbnb, right. Are that, uh, these uh, incentives for growth and business can be so disruptive to local communities, right? And really erode erode those communities. And I think if there aren't alternative systems keeping that in check, uh, it can sort of be a, a downward spiral. I think it's a case where, you know, sort of maximizing profit doesn't end up being the, the best for Right. Yeah. In fact, um, you, you might be aware that there is a, um, you know, they've developed a burger flipping robot. So a burger flipping robot, of course, can work 24 by seven, never get sick. And, uh, you know, minimum wage in places like LA County and here in the Bay area, for example, about $15 an hour. What's the impact of taking away a job making hamburgers that pays $15 an hour and replacing that job with the robot uh, that can work nonstop and 
and make these these burgers and never take vacation, never get sick, etc. So what's the economic impact? Certainly for the business, you might say, well, economically, your cost of doing business goes down and you have better profits. But what's the societal impact of having virtualized that job function? So these are things I think that we need to think about as entrepreneurs and as investors so that we you know, we try and, and hew as closely as possible to this whole Iron Man sort of a solution versus a Terminator sort of a solution. And I think it's incumbent upon us, you know, we entrepreneurs and, and uh, investors to have that in mind. I think, you know, maybe broader society uh, doesn't have those considerations on a day-to-day basis, but, uh, but we can do. Yeah. I find it really interesting showing me how, I guess your, your preventative sort of solution to this is, is fairly emergent. You know, you're not really asking for anyone to really step in and say, you know, what's, what's right or wrong or which businesses should, should or should not exist. Um, you're putting the the burden, and I think rightfully so, on the on the entrepreneur and and the uh, the funder. You know, I, maybe maybe that's the only way to do it. Is uh, what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, yeah, I think that that is the only way to do it because you know we are there at the formation stage. You know, broader society will only experience it downstream once this thing has been productized. Broader society doesn't get a chance to vote on it or design this, right? Uh, we entrepreneurs and investors do so. Let's let's remember that that you know, ethics is a is a really full spectrum thing. It's not merely privacy, right? It's more than that. It's uh, it's giving people the right of a clean environment. And uh, if, for example, a machine learning model creates a huge carbon footprint, maybe that's not something that we should do. You know, there might be a better application of our brain power and our investment dollars than to do that thing, which ends up causing more harm than good based on the carbon footprint and the same consideration when it comes to automating job functions. You know, it's interesting. Uh, and I, I think we'll move on to the next uh, topic after this question. Um, but I guess yeah, your experience as an investor and working in technology for all these, all these decades, have you found it possible? And I don't know if you have any examples off the top of your head, but have you seen it actually happen that some of these companies have, have pivoted, into something healthier once they've kind of realized that there are negative externalities to their, their profit model. And is that something that, you know, is common, uncommon? Is it, you know, do they get a gold star for doing so? What has been your, your experience with that? Uh, so I'm ever the, uh, the optimist and ever the optimist when it comes to human nature. So, you know, I think that this will be part of a, a broader trend um, and, and particularly because, you know, we're putting more and more strains on this planet, right? So we re- really no longer have the margin for doing things which are not making life better. So and I think this will be increasingly be a trend. Um, I think actually Airbnb has started to you know, move in this direction. And I'm sure there are other companies there too. I know, I, you know IBM, I think, has come out with some interesting and positive uh, uses of, of AI. So I'm hopeful that this will be part of a trend and it's because, you know, we human beings, that's what we want. We want, you know, we want to be dealt with fairly. So it's a good, actually a uh, business driver consequently, because this is what, uh, you know, we, we humans want, what we consumers want. Yeah. One thing that, uh, I'm really optimistic about with all the emergent decentralized technologies is ways to give consumers more of a voice and, uh, an active shape. Um, you know, something like an evil, again, an even playing ground with these companies, right. Where they're actually being, you know, as the sort of 
users of a product or a service, they have a voice like a like any constituent, right? In uh, you know, like uh, for example, you know, there might be a group of consumers that are creating some sort of collective to negotiate with Nike as a company. But you know, I'm really interested to see some of these new models come out where people have more of a voice, right? Because as you're saying, like that's one of the the primary ways to keep that accountability. But uh, yeah, I <laughs> I don't know how much you've been following the what's happening with DAOs and 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 some of these w- new ways of organizing on the internet. But uh, do do you see that as a sort of a natural trend or? Yeah, <laughs> at the at the risk of being a Pollyanna, yeah, I think that that this is where the future lies, and I think that uh, uh, the current generation understands, and it's 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 much more central uh, to the current generation that. Uh, technology be deployed uh, with ethics in mind, with ethical results in mind, with positive impact in mind. And I think that we were less aware of these factors back when I was first coming up. Um, I think this is more more central nowadays, and we even see it in the public sphere where there's you know, all this technology regulation that's being considered, and that's being driven by, of course, grassroots consumer demand. Uh, we want to see things like privacy, and it's now actually getting enshrined in national regulations around the world. And we're seeing this in in data. We're seeing this also just in environmental practices. With countries trying to decarbonize things like that. So, again, at the risk of being a Pollyanna, let me uh, aspire to um, a world where things continue to get better uh, because we're more aware of how to make things better. Well, I, I want to touch also on your uh, other uh, piece that you wrote that was really impactful to me on uh, higher education and the zombie. Apocalypse. That was a great title. But I, in that article, you uh, talk about and you and you reference uh, Scott Galloway's interview with NYU, and it's about virtualizing higher education. And I think you quote him saying that you know, unfettered by the constraints of a physical plant, uh, so will consolidate with a bunch of uh, elite universities scooping up the market share. Uh, and by that, you mean. Uh, I think he was talking about student enrollments at the expense of non-elite institutions. So um, I wanted to ask you, you know, since I have you here, <laughs> do you, do you see any outcome with virtual higher education that is more democratic uh, with regards to accessibility or procedure? Do you see it kind of being, you know, the elite uh, universities, you know, winner-take-all scenario where you kind of see this long-tail effect with just a few handful of universities having the majority of enrollments. How do you, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, I, I think that one of the things that um, the uh, pandemic shutdown uh, allowed us to develop is, is virtual education. It helped us advance that more quickly than it would have had we not gone into a lockdown. And I think that um, education is also a human right. And heretofore, it's been really limited by um, geographic access and, and economic access. So you needed to be affluent enough to be able to pursue higher education or education of any sort, but let's talk about higher education. You need to be affluent enough to pursue it and you needed to have physical access to that that university. If we virtualize, can we use that as a way of democratizing access to higher education? And virtualized education hopefully is done at uh, nearly free cost. And if we're now freed from the geographic boundaries, uh, can we now offer education to anybody anywhere, no matter where you live, what your economic station might be, anything, you have access to that same high quality education. So 
one of the things that we have to think about as uh, you know, the academic institution business model is how do we now conform to this um, you know, virtual, how do we, and how do we deliver value in this completely virtualized environment? The, the, I think the, the issue here for, for all universities is to now think about how do we do this rapidly because otherwise the brand name universities will, will scoop up students. And the best way to keep uh, brand name universities from consolidating uh, higher education in their own hands is for universities everywhere to think about what is the value that they add, uh, what, what are the constituencies that they best serve, and really focus on virtualizing with all of those considerations in mind. Um, I think it's really important that we have a wide range, a heterogeneous range of universities, because certainly all of us are, are very different. So our, our needs will best be met by a heterogeneous and diverse set of higher education offerings, not a consolidated few number of offerings. So uh, that was really the point I was trying to make. And, uh, you know, I think we're at a really interesting juncture here in education in general and higher education in particular, um, because the uh, lockdown from the pandemic has forced us to confront what should virtualized higher education look like. So it's an, it's an evolutionary step here for us now. I'm curious if it is the case if sort of the large brand name universities would end up scooping up a lot of the enrollment or if uh, a lot of that brand is highly dependent on the prestige that comes from limited access? Yeah, a really good question. Yeah, a really good question. I think that, uh, uh, you know, getting back to what we talked about earlier, even when it came to the consolidation of data in the hands of a few players in big tech and why that was not a positive thing for the, you know, for the broader society, I think the same is true for higher education. So um, I think society's mess needs are best met by having a, a diverse set of higher education offerings out there. And in the end, for all of us as, as students, we want to attend that institution that speaks best to us. And should institutions of higher education really think about how to speak to their particular constituencies? Uh, because if they don't, then certainly just a small ha handful of so-called you know, elite universities will capture all the students because it's no longer an issue of financial access or geographic access because um, you know, all of those those physical bonds have been taken away. Um, so for universities that might be you know, outside of that top 10%, they really need to reimagine what their business model is and how they best stay relevant going forward. Otherwise, there'll be consolidation into you know, those top 10% name brand universities, um, and they'll be serving constituencies far and wide. Uh, and the, all the remaining universities will be basically out of business. Yeah, I think uh, in that article too, I think Scott at least was pushing towards these companies, uh, or these uh, universities partnering with big tech. And you certainly don't think that that's the right approach. But I think later you also discuss the need to apply the same sort of behavioral sciences towards keeping people sort of hooked on education. You know, the same thing that got us hooked on likes and, and buying now. Um, you felt like it'd be very interesting to see that applied to the field of education. You know, and, and when I read that, I was thinking, well, you know, aren't these big tech companies, those borderline data monopolies, if not full-fledged data monopolies, aren't they already in the position to best, um, you know, 
deploy this sort of behavioral science into technology, right? So the thing that came to mind was, you know, the Facebook undergraduate degree, you know, what are, how far, maybe, maybe we're just kind of overlooking that. And that's something that is something that does give more access, obviously at a, you know, somewhat cost to privacy, but it would be, they would I almost be the best suited given that they have so much expertise on the behavioral science. Yeah. Yep. I, I think it's fine that, that the um, companies like Facebook offer that education, uh, but we need to have uh, a public education available as well. Uh, higher education should not be driven by profit maximizing companies because their ends are to maximize their profits. Their ends are not to make society better. So I think public institutions of higher learning need to exist to, to drive research, to drive education, and for those institutions to continue to be successful and relevant in the modern age, they need to, uh, to employ modern technologies. And modern technologies include using behavioral economics to drive student engagement. So, you know, heretofore, we've used behavioral economics to get people to push the buy button, basically, which is fine for a business model, right? But for higher education, the, the business model of higher education really is to make society better by providing education. So can we use behavioral economics to drive that beneficial good for, uh, for society? And behavioral economics is very powerful and it can be employed in different ways. Rob responds to different behavioral economics techniques than does Anka, than, than does Shomit, than does Jonathan. So can we optimize those to get each of us to learn in the way that is right for us? So to do, use the right nudges for Rob and you know, the right choice architecture for Shomit, et cetera, et cetera to help us be better and more engaged students. And these are the sorts of things that a re-envisioned higher education, virtualized higher education system needs to employ. It's mm. not about the educational content. Uh, it's also about the, the context in which that content is delivered. And this has always been the case, which is why, you know, despite the invention of the printing press 600 years ago and the now, you know, the ubiquitous accessibility of books, Still, that's not enough to get us to learn, right? We need the books, plus we need fellow students, plus we need instructors, all of those things. The context of the content is what allows us to learn. Can we now virtualize that too? Yeah, I mean, the idea uh, of, you know, actually it's a very beautiful vision, Shoma. When I think about that, you know, just inventing new sorts of games for people to play uh, based on uh, a very sort of tailored process, right? I think that's that's really the best way to do it right now, it does feel like it's a one size fit, fits all, you know, I'm even thinking back to my time at, uh, at Berkeley and, um, you know, the, the large sort of, uh, uh, classes where, you know, you'd have like 1100, 1200, uh, kids sitting together and learning. I, I didn't really feel like that was, that was much learning was going on there. But when I thought about, you know, the discussion groups that were much smaller, you know, 15, 20 people, that's like, that's where it really happened, right? We're able to really, we're able to really connect with people and kind of have that shared struggle and that shared identity that we are students and we're all trying to understand the same thing. I think that was really awesome to see. And I think we'll see more of these sort of cohort based, uh, massive online sort of courses coming out in the future. I think there's a couple companies already being funded in that area, like, um, Mavin, um, comes to mind, but I'm, I'm really, curious how we continue to sort of push for that short, sort of shared identity, right? Because part of it is also like the experiences that you have together that I guess technology hasn't done yet a per like a perfect job, especially when we're talking about Zoom and all the Zoom fatigue that's happening. 
I feel I felt really bad for I guess a lot of the the kids that were going in freshman year to college that uh, you know the first year they were going to be doing it online. I think that's really really tough, right? Because that's like the 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 stage where you know you really need to connect with your peers and you know you form your support groups and that's like where I guess almost the foundation is set. And um, you know I wish in the future as we continue to develop all, out this technology that we continue to do more sort of studies to really understand like you know, is it something that can truly displace education in like the physical space? Uh, and what are the sort of things to get us there, right? Like VR could e easily be one of those things that needs to be perfected before we make that that leap over the physical space. Right. Yeah. In fact, um, in that article, I had a bunch of citations about how uh, bonds can be formed virtually, uh, which are quite strong, but it requires actually having people in, interact in certain ways, but it can be done. And in a virtualized landscape where you might have a student that's 5,000 miles away, but you want him or her to bond with the institution, with the professor, with the fellow students in the same way as if they were in physically in class together, how do you do that? I think that's the important thing. This is what I mean by context versus just content, because educational content by itself is not enough. Again, if educational content were enough, then none of us would need to go to school at all. We could just sit at home with our books and read all about it, right? And we could be nuclear physicists or brain surgeons or attorneys just from reading the books. Clearly, that's not how education gets imparted today and hasn't been ever in, in human society. So we need that context of collaborating, cooperating, sitting elbow to elbow with, can we recreate that online? And we see analogs that already, I mean, look at gaming, right? You have massive multiplayer games where people feel part of a community, feel part of a tribe. Can we bring that sort of a dynamic to higher education, education in general, but higher education for this discussion? Um, the technology exists to be able to do that. And the technology exists uh, to, to bind people together like this so that they do feel like they have the context of the education. And because data is so scalable and um, virtual media are so scalable, we can also do this on a per person basis. What is um, Rob's psychographic, uh, that, what is it that tells us how he learns best and how can we then reinforce that so we can target the education to him so he learns best of all? You know, what's the psychographic for Anke? What's the psychographic for Jonathan? So that we can tailor our interactions with each of these students in the way that works best for them. Um, you know, should the nudge to Shomit to get his homework done, should that come in the morning or in the evening? Uh, we know when he engages, he engages in the evening, he doesn't engage in the morning. So let's not waste a nudge on him in the morning. Let's give him that nudge in the evening. So, you know, it's, it's employing behavioral techniques such as this, which will help optimize the delivery of, of uh, online education. Online education, if it's merely the exposure to content, it's merely just basically taking a textbook and having it available online, coupled with an online lecture, that may not be sufficient. I think we have to go beyond that. Yeah, another uh, sort of simple tool that comes to my mind is, you know, around uh, gratification. And, you know, some people, especially entrepreneurs, are very comfortable with uh, delayed gratification where we get our rewards at the end. And uh, whereas others really want to see that continual feedback. And, you know, something like a Khan Academy is structured like the uh, ladder where as soon as you sort of watch videos, you're getting points and, you know, they're, they're occurring and you see that across videos and, uh, it's super engaging, keeps you sort of hooked in that cycle. So like simple things like that, that I can really see kind of being generalized to entire platforms where 
you kind of do a survey, you almost uh, speak with another human at the end of the day who really is almost like borderline, a, I guess, a, um, a therapist, right? And that they, they really understand you at a deep level and, and try to tailor the best thing for you. I don't know if it's as easy as just filling out a survey online, you know, uh, showman you might actually need some more hands-on sort of diagnosis as to like, what's the ideal structure of the education? What's the best uh, stages of that education where they need to get feedback and rewards? And, um, you know, I, I see that's a very sort of unexplored area uh, right now. I want to take you down this uh, thought experiment too around the, just the nature of education. And yeah, you'll have to bear with me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, what we're seeing, I guess, a lot of these uh, online universities coming up now, and there's this one called uh, Western Governors. They are based in Salt Lake City in Utah, but they're entirely online university. And they basically use online competency-based learning model as opposed to like the traditional cohort-based class model at most universities. And um, the idea is that education itself can be decentralized to some extent where you can have competency sort of recognized within individual tribes and individual you know schools and that can be sort of bubbled up and interpreted by other communities however they want so in this sort of scenario there is no like um there's certainly like the brands of of universities but um each one's kind of have their own sort of certificate that they're issuing then it's up to others how they want to interpret it interpret that certificate so here, you know, they might have some reputation and they might even have some metrics as to, you know, someone who has this certificate, how likely are they to convert into a full-time job? So that, you know, that might be a, an example of a metric there. But in this situation, in this scenario, there isn't any sort of central, like, I guess, accredited university model, right? You just have all these like communities that are internet native and issuing their own sort of uh, forms of whatever recognition there might be. How do you, how, what do you think about that? Do you think that's a, a feasible model where we just evolve into just these like online communities that are own issuing their own sort of bestowing their own awards upon like uh, people that pass whatever tests they might have? Yeah, no, I think that, and that I think it's a very scalable model. If you think about it, what does a university graduation degree uh, confer on you, it confers on you, it's a proxy measure of, are you able to do this thing, this job, you know, this, this trade? So it's a proxy for, okay, Ankit knows how to do math or Ankit knows how to do biology, whatever. Uh, and that proxy is now interpreted by your employer. Is the university the only party that can communicate, uh, you know, by a proxy that you're competent at doing something? Uh, I think the answer is no. Um, you know, for example, you might have a, a degree in chemistry, but you've been an engineer for the past 15 years. All of your coworkers can attest to the fact that you're a great engineer. Uh, you know, so you're great, great code, despite the fact that you have a chemistry degree. So it's your coworkers that are now delivering the proxy of Anka is just a kick-ass software engineer. So I don't see why we can't have, you know, this, these sorts of proxies that communicate our competence at doing things that come from different sources beyond just the traditional university. Um, so, you know, I worked in, in VC. I only have a degree in computer science. I don't have an MBA. I have an undergraduate degree in computer science even. But, uh, you know, I teach at Berkeley with the, uh, basically just a bachelor's degree in computer science. 
And it's because hopefully the other things I've done in my life serve as a proxy for the competency I might have in the topics that I teach, despite the fact that I don't have a master's degree or a PhD working in VC without having an MBA, for example. So there are other proxies that hopefully communicate my competence at being able to do the things that I do. So to answer your question, yeah, I think it's completely valid to have other proxy measures for anyone's competency in doing a certain thing. Yeah. And I think the, I mean, the tech, the technology, as you're saying, is there, right? The thing that um, I think is not quite, I don't, I don't, I sometimes don't feel society is ready for that, you know, where there's still so much of a obsession with, with brand names and that's right. Yeah. You know, that, that doesn't seem to be, that seems to be almost a cultural thing that needs to change. And I think it's starting to change, but you know, it's, it's tough, right? Cause it's so systemic at the end of the day, right? Like the status quo has every reason to continue pushing for that, but you know, there could be a, a day where it doesn't quite matter. Oh, I haven't heard that name before, but you know, I know it's this tribe of, you know, software engineers that were teaching all the members of that tribe, how to, how to code well and to engineer software. And that's all it takes. Right. Uh, I think something like that is much more likely to democratize access and at, at scale, right. That just can't right. be done if it always has to be through some sort of brand name or yeah. central authority like that. Yeah. Or I think of your LinkedIn endorsements. Uh, it may be that again, you studied, uh, chemistry, not computer science, but you look at, uh, LinkedIn, I said, oh my gosh, Ankit has 500 endorsements for his skill as a software engineer. Or Ankit has no degree. He was saying he just only went to high school. And look at that, he has 500 endorsements for being a software engineer, right? I'm gonna put a lot of weight on the fact that you have 500 endorsements for being a software engineer. You know, your, your academic qualifications, your official ones notwithstanding. So I think maybe uh, some, we're already starting to see some of this and there's no reason that we should be circumscribed merely by our, uh, you know, canonical academic qualifications. And that shouldn't circumscribe who we are. It's, it's our, the things that we've done, the things that we're capable of doing. And there are many different proxy measures for that, including LinkedIn endorsements. Yeah. It's, uh, what will also be interesting is just kind of how it, uh, all gets documented and timestamped. And this is where I'll, I'll do another shameless plug for blockchain technology, but you know, it's the uncorruptible ledger that, uh, should be the the uh foundation for anything like this right where everything is transparent and you know whatever certificates are being issued on that and i think that's that's the future that at least we're envisioning you know definitely at sapien right like all the, the increasing sort of tokenization of these things and uh to make more things like transactional in nature just just like acquiring a degree and automated too i think and there's a lot of sort of exciting uh developments in this space right now that yeah, we're, we're working, we're working crazy hours, but, uh, you know, we are keeping an eye on and things are rapidly changing there. So, all right. Well, uh, Shomit, uh, do you want to ask a few more questions and we'll, we'll let you go. So we've talked, I guess, a lot about, you know, that your, you know, your tribes that you've been a part of, uh, you know, where you've sort of been contributing your time and, and effort. What are, what are some tribes that you have found, uh, conflict with? that uh, in your past, you've kind of had to go toe-to-toe toe -to -toe with them? Yeah, I wouldn't characterize it as conflict. I would call it competition. Um, and as a startup entrepreneur, uh, you're always competing with other startups who might be doing something similar to or exactly the same as, as what you're doing, but you're both trying to change the world. And I think this is good competition. I don't see it as conflict. The conflict, I think, is with the 
business problem you're trying to solve, right? That's where the conflict lies, but it isn't with other tribes. I think with other tribes, it's merely competition, if that distinction makes sense. And I think the parallel there is even in, in athletics. Um, when you play against another team, it's a competition with, it's not really conflict, it's a competition with, and it's a competition to see who wins. And it's also a great way to see how you should get better yourself. Um, and absent that competition, you will never get better. And I think the best factor in helping a startup be successful is having other passionate startups also in the same space with whom you must compete so that you can be better. And if you didn't have that competition, maybe you'd be sloppy, maybe you'd be lackadaisical, and you wouldn't really achieve the uh, the impact that you wanted. Uh, Shamit, what uh, tribes do you want to see? So what was that, Rob? I missed it. What uh, tribes would you like to see exist in the future? Oh, what tribes would I like to see exist in the future? Um, I think, uh, yeah, we're going into a, a period of uh, time where we're going to have no end of challenges before us, and we're seeing some of them manifest already today with uh, uh, environmental disasters, you know, really everywhere in the world right now, you know, strongly contributed to by, by uh, uh, climate change. So there are a lot of challenges we're going to have before us, and it's only through smart, passionate tribes that we're going to be able to, to solve these. And some of these tribes will be in competition with each other because they've got different ways of doing it, but that's a good thing because the more competition we have, the better the result we'll get. So um, lots of problems before us. Uh, I think we had a great example here the past year and a half with the worldwide effort on the uh, COVID-19 vaccines, many successes there from all parts of the world uh, in, in producing those vaccines in record time. And can we continue to have that sort of passionate tribal attention and focus on some of these other char uh, challenges that are going to be looming in front of us? Certainly climate change is one of them, but just also just the provisioning of all these, what I call the basic human rights uh, to all of us, which is the right to employment, the right to education, the right to healthcare, the right, care, right to food, all of those things, the right to privacy. Can we focus ourselves and our tribes on delivering those for the betterment of, of uh, mankind? All right, Shobit. Well, this was uh, extremely insightful. I want to thank you for taking the time today uh, to walk through some of the ideas and, and what you've been thinking about. And uh, we really, truly appreciate your time. And uh, we look forward to perhaps another day where you can join us for Tribal One. It's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, guys, for having me. Um, glad to have been here and uh, wishing you all the best and all success.